Hi, and welcome to an episode of Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm Donna Bishop, and there has always been a relationship between LGBTQ and fashion, and this is one of those topics that I classify as an iceberg topic because it seems like there's just kind of a few things to talk about, and then the more we get into it, the more we realize there is below the surface. So just to kind of manage everyone's expectations a little bit, I know there are going to be really key moments throughout history that unfortunately we can't talk about, so just because of time. So maybe we'll have a chance to do part two, but I just want to kind of acknowledge that this is something that we could you know, talk for three hours about in terms of all of the important moments in history. And I'm thrilled that I can't think of anyone better, really, to have here to discuss this. Um, Philip Ng uh, has worked with Max since the very, very beginning, is currently in his, his first retirement and has come back as a, as a consultant, um, has been instrumental with uh, Fashion Cares and the Viva Glam campaigns and really looking forward to getting his perspective. And of course, we have Jim Searle here as well, who's the co-founder and co-designer of Hoax Couture. And we have Chris here in the audience as well, his partner in crime. Um, and, and hoaxes has been around, importantly, since the, since the 80s as a really important fashion brand in Toronto. And I know Jim and Philip have worked a lot together um, on, on fashion cares and whatnot. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. Um, and just to get into, you know, a little bit of historical context, because we are going to, you know, focus the bulk of this talk on, you know, 80s, 90s, present, because that's, you know, the conscious memory and what, and what, you know, all of our experience is. But I want to talk a little bit about just the, the secret dressing and the coding of, of, you know, homosexuality and fashion, because, you know, we, we have to, gay rights and fashion are so linked in many ways. And I'm wondering, Jim, if maybe you can start us off with a little bit of the, the history of, of coded dressing and, and what the, starting in the 18th century, going well, back, yes. I mean, you know, the most obvious one would be dressing in drag, of course, and uh, which was uh, completely illegal on the streets um, until... Uh, well, I don't even know if it still is, uh, when, when that changed, but uh, <laughs> it used to be the law that you had to wear at least three items of clothing from your actual birth gender, right? Uh, right. Or, or you would be arrested. And, uh, and uh, in terms of the image you have here, of Oscar Wilde, mm -hmm. um, there were things, like he used to wear a green carnation, which apparently was a known thing that uh, would identify you as gay. And I wore green today. So Very I'm, I'm 18th century fashion of you. I'm basically <laughs> dressed as a, as a big homo <laughs> circa 1899. <laughs> <laughs> and if I had my and if I had my suede shoes on, I would be like, "Whoa, over the top." Yeah. <laughs> so. And and Philip, in terms of you know, we're looking at this dapper gentleman up here. Um, the the coded dressing would vary city to city sometimes as well, would it not? Can you add a little bit well, to that? Well, this is an image of a writer from France. And then if, if you looked at the one that we just had up, which was Oscar Wilde, there was dandyism. And I could, dandyism though wasn't just for gay people. It was it was for, for flamboyant straight people. It was for like the king of France, like you know, Louis was one of the most flamboyant kings like in the history of it the world. It was more like aristocracy, aristocracy almost as opposed to sexual so, orientation. So maybe that's why dandyism, because it sort of showed I'm wealthy enough to look good, really good, <laughs> and really out there. So you've got Oscar here at 23. And I, I just thought this outfit like, looks like it could fit into modern day fashion. And it was, like, he was a French writer and part of a circle of people. Um, so it's always been there. But I, I have a feeling if you were gay, you would just gravitate towards that. The same way we gravitate towards fashion now, you'd go, that is so flouncy. That is so good. I want that outfit. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I'm. So, we talked about this quote. I had the privilege of hearing Kent Monkman talk not long ago, and he talked about how fantasy can take you out of your own disempowerment. And you know that really struck me, especially with him as a as an you know indigenous gay man himself. That the idea of disempowerment and coming out of that is such an important part of the story, as well. Do you see that tracking kind of like through history? Well, fashion took me out of Windsor, Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was either auto worker, you know, chic, or, 
you know, that sort of glamour, and, and I think there's lots of young gay people that would say, wow, that's what brought me to big cities. Yeah. You know, it's like that glamour because it didn't exist, and it's a total escapist, escapist thing. There's, you know, it was in the movies, it was in some, mag especially in movies, mm -hmm. right? So you gravitated to that, and then if you were lucky enough to actually s fall into fashion, or I think like Jim and Chris actually <laughs> see that there was room in fashion for you, you went for it. And I think the surprising thing in Canada was you, you had a chance to get into it, especially in the 80s, which we're both, we're all from the same time period. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, we were fortunate. And I think, too, we've got a, a shot of Marlena Dietrich up here as well, just to show, you know, there was the, you know, the feminism of male dressing, just as there was the masculinization of feminine dressing to try and play with different signifiers back and, back and forth. And really, it was, you know, to jump ahead into, like, the second wave of feminism where we didn't need that kind of fashion-forced idea of gender dressing that kind of busted open the doors for, for fashion in, in many ways. Yeah. I, I think in the 1930s it was a yeah. political statement too, like basically women did not have the rights and powers so they would dress like men to, to, uh, to kind of showcase that. But that is such a beautiful shot. That was a shocking shot like back in the 30s. The fact that she was sort of blatantly saying, you know, if she wasn't like a lesbian, that she was bisexual. Um, and, you know, she started out in another movie, like um, in a, a costume, uh, Blue Angel, right. yeah. with a top hat on. So she's always had some, like, there's another signifier. Um, and uh, at that time, there was nothing more masculine than a tuxedo, like that formal dressing thing. So um, I, I actually put that picture in because she's got pants on. Yeah. And now she just looks like she's just like in your face. But that she was in your face back in the 30s. Um, but it scared the pants off of a lot of people <laughs> when they saw her, you know, in your face. Well, and fashion has been such an, a political tool in many ways. Like that in your face, like I think of, you know, uh, disco in the 70s moving into the, uh, you know, a lot of the the bigness of the 80s in terms of big hair, big shoulders, big pants, big crotches, like every, as in how long they were, you know. Um, you know, all of those things, it, fashion has always had an in-your-face element, um, especially, I think, as it relates to wanting to push political ideals. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with that. It's also, it's kind of aspirational for people, too. Like, you know, you, when you dress up like this, it's like, this is the person I want to be, right? So I think there's that aspect as well. And what I love about this shot of Marlena Dietrich is in context of when it came out, it was so radical. And, and now, like, you know, Yves Saint Laurent did Le Smoking, and it's, actually, it's completely de rigueur for tuxedos to be worn by women on the red carpet, such that, you know, we don't think of that as shocking anymore. I also think we really love a rebel. A rebel who is well-dressed, a rebel that has style, because you do have to be a rebel. You have to be, you know, in English, you'd be an English eccentric. You know, but you've, you've got to have that. You've got to be able to pull it off and you have to sort of transcend. You have to have an I don't give a fuck attitude like for a lot of the clothing that like these people, you know, like, like wore. At that time, it certainly wasn't everybody. A, you could get arrested. But for the ones that did and in the right place and the right time, it was really advantageous and it was really political because everyone was watching them and sort of standing back. Can you give a little bit of historical background about, you know, what were the what were the legal ramifications of being openly gay? You know, kind of like through the annals. I mean, I know that's again it's iceberg, but I know. Well, I, basically, it was completely illegal, and like uh, I think that I did. I don't think that really started until the Victorian era, but uh, before that, it was just happening, and everybody, nobody, it's like, don't don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, but after the Victorian era, it became completely illegal. People were rounded up, people were arrested, people were in prisons, their lives were ruined. Um, Oscar, Oscar went to jail. Yeah, Oscar went to jail. Mm -hmm. The Turing, the, the, the uh, computer scientist who invented the computer went to jail. Um, many thousands of people went to jail, so it wasn't good. It was not good, to put it mildly. Um, let's jump ahead just uh, here's some more um i was just asking is that your outfit no no no, no. okay sorry is that twos eduardo and oh yeah uh, yeah 
If you're listening XL. to this, you can XL. go to the website and you'll see some of the images you're t we're talking about because it's so visual. Yeah. Um, but just again, the idea of, I think, you know, fantasy and dressing and how that pertained to, you know, escaping some of that disempowerment. Like you brought this picture in, Jim. Do you want to? No, this one's from Philip. Oh, actually. for Philip. This is one of the fashion care shots, I think. Isn't yeah. It? yeah. Well, that is me putting it out of order. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> but if we flash forward historically, you know, into the 70s where we have, you know, more the eccentricness kind of starts to become a little bit more mainstream with Elton John and David Bowie. Like we started to have a lot of um, that in-your-face dressing get starts to get ratcheted up. Would you say, Philip? I mean, it's kind of amazing he lived through all this, much less became like a hero, because look at him, what a freak. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, he's covered in makeup, and he's so different. He's, I, it's like, you know, if Dietrich was in the 30s, I sort of think of David Bowie as the guy in the 70s mm -hmm. going, how did he get away with that kind of a thing? Well, thank God he got away with that. And then he's got that massive talent behind him, though. Like, he's got that aura. He was such a great singer, such a great, you know, uh, uh, musician. That um, and then he comes up with this look, which is playing with everything in the '70s, though, right? Because I mean, there was you would just come out of like the hippie period, right? So it's not that that's hippie, because he was always sort of going future. I don't know what would you like that look is. That's uh, what do you call that? Trash glamour. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> glam trash. <laughs> you go out of the '60s and you go into glam trash. So. Well, and and the, the whole—I've never heard the term glam trash before, but let's run with it. But you there is—I just made it, is, yeah, I just made it <laughs> happening right now. It's a thing, yes. um, but it it plays with like gender fluidity, like and Bowie was really—I mean, that was part of his well, magic, fluid, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was incredibly fluid, as opposed to someone like Elton John, that I think was incredibly eccentric, but didn't quite have the same gender fluidity and as closeted. Bowie did. Yeah. Well, and it ruined his career, right? Like when he, it almost in, did. In he a could, way, yeah. in a way that it didn't for for Bowie or well, um, like if like, we were to compare like Elton John to George Michael in terms of the arc of their career. Right. But and that's all timing, though. Like absolutely, this, you know. absolutely, absolutely, it is. But Bowie was in your face. Like Bowie never denied anything. Just like at that time, actually, they played into it. I know that was something to do back at that time as well. It's like play right into that. That image where I remember like Elton got married. Not that he isn't the gayest man on the earth now, so I don't want that, like, you know, and he's a uh, nice man, but uh, great Canadian husband. But, um, you know, he was just right out there. Uh, and how did, how did dressing in the 70s and moving into the 80s, like if we're talking, if we look back and talk about the signifiers of, you know, the green carnation and, and suede suits and that sort of thing, did did we have were there signifiers in the 70s and 80s as we started to to continue to move and, and as a designer like cause well, I, I think when you started getting into disco music and things like that then the, the thing shifts from effeminate gay dressing to more masculine gay dressing like you get the village people who are you know the firemen the policemen yep. the cowboy the what, what was the last one I don't the know. Lum lumberjack athletic wear it's yeah. the first time you see a lot of athletic work because, uh, like, the first time those little itty bitty shorts. Yeah, those came little out. tennis <laughs> yeah. shorts and, and uh, the tennis shorts and the tent like the, the and tank tops and, and the and headband yeah. is in the '70s and yeah. they were like in every gay bar. Yeah, and nobody could even throw a ball, but they could dance. Well, because the gym culture was really coming, like exercise culture was something that was coming into its own then as well, right? Like we had this cultural movement of yeah. gyms opening and bodybuilding. And, and you had gay lib in the 70s, yes. like coming on strong. So it was all yeah. about the body finally sort of like coming, coming out of the closet. And you're going to come out of the closet, you're going to put on your little outfit. But oh, your body better look good too. So it was all wrapped up. All wrapped up in the same thing. And... When so when when did hoax when did you start designing? We Jen? started in '84. So as we move into the I '80s, can't I mean, I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've got a great photo of of Boy George here as another kind of iconic. So like in the '80s, here. in the '80s, there was Boy George, there was Dead or Alive, there was uh, Lee Bowery, there was the. There was all the magazines out of England, ID and The Face, uh, that which were doing all this kind of gender-bending uh, wildness that, uh, th and the club culture out of England. There was all this stuff going on that uh, um, was just... It really was very English, huh? Everything yeah. that was like... Because um, even Fashion Cares came out of England. Right. Like the title of it came from Lynn Franks, 
who oh. is the role model for uh, AbFab. She was a PR. <laughs> she yeah. came up with it, like the, the term. Because when we, uh, when Sid Better wanted to do uh, Fashion Cares, we had to get permission to use the name. And he actually wrote Lynn Franks, um, who was happy to, right. you know, thrilled. You know, for years, we stayed, I stayed in touch with her. And she was like so ecstatic because the English one lasted a few seasons. But the Canadian went for like 25 years. But um, Totally. And we'll yeah. get into more of that because I think... You know, Fashion Cares is such an important, and, and MAC, like we'll go back because, you know, the MAC, Viva Glam Fashion Cares, that's such an important part of the, the fashion community, of the LGBTQ community, of like the Toronto, like that it's such, I was saying to Jim earlier, I was talking to someone recently about this talk and talking about MAC and they talked about it being a New York company. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. You know, that's that's very much a, a Canadian, a Canadian, company. A Canadian <laughs> company. And, you know, that's something I think we could shout more about, yeah. you know, but we'll get that jumping ahead. <laughs> um, so, Jim, tell okay. us a little bit about this. This, you <laughs> so know, this for is, those of us who are around in the 80s. This I mean, is circa 1985. <laughs> and it took my mother. 10 years to figure out I was gay after we made these clothes. <laughs> 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 but this is uh, oversized. Um, the, we were doing these kind of combination harem pants, Thai fisherman pant things that, uh, uh, like tons of fabric, uh, upholstery fabrics. We were using all these wacky things. It was basically nothing like you would see at the bay. And, uh, and was that part of the, you know, as a, as a, designer were you trying to you know be in contrary to what the mainstream was was I happening i think we were just trying to have fun that's basically we were just trying to have fun we didn't have a political agenda or or, or we weren't trying to be uh, against anything we just wanted to put stuff out there that was totally out off the wall and fun and people every time we did something crazy people went nuts and uh, and so we just did crazy stuff for, for the whole 1980s <laughs> <laughs> and and what were what were some of the can you talk a little bit more about like what did crazy mean then so like a lot of fabric m meant well, something uh, uh, we did shirts that were probably three feet wide short sleeve shirts made of raw silk that were very wide with little polo collars uh, oh, we did. This is um, we did uh, athletic wear as fashion. So we we took inspiration. Those are pants modeled on football players' pants, um, and a bomber to the guy in the middle there, who's Clarence Ford actually, who is a famous Toronto choreographer. He choreographs the Raptors girls and stuff. But um, I love how he's leaping in his rollerblades. That's know. no <laughs> easy feat. Uh, that jacket, that's a big, puffy, oversized bomber jacket. Those were pants that were in our store. Like we put them out there. That was what we wanted people to wear. And uh, Carlos, you might have had a pair of those. <laughs> <laughs> and and were, you, were you designing for, for gay men or were you designing no, for no, anyone who wanted to wear? Like yeah, it was, just, it was just fun to go out clubbing, basically. That was what our initial clothing, well, a lot of it was that. And then we also did kind of suits for people who didn't have to wear a suit. Like, uh, so big shoulders, you know, over, over, very oversized, very long. We did coats down to your ankles and uh, we had lots of variations on things that didn't look like anything that came from Harry Rosen. The, the beautiful impracticality yes. of, of a new look. And I, I like that you mentioned the club culture because, you know, clubs were where, you know, anyone who, it, were, it was the melting pot of so many things coming together in so many ways. Like I remember when I, like when I would go to the clubs, it would be because that's where my gay friends were, my girlfriends were. It wasn't where we had to pretend to be within the constructs of what was going on in the real world many ways. It was a complete escape. Yeah, it was a, it was a little world downtown. There, I mean, the one that Chris and I remember the most is the Cameron House, um, where they had a Wednesday night event that was just, we were there every single Wednesday for sure. And it was like black, white, gay, straight, house music all night long. And uh, The house <laughs> music was a big part of all that, right? Oh yeah, it was huge. And then there were the warehouse parties and stuff like that. We did. We did three fashion shows at the Cameron House and uh, uh, runway shows in the bar, which is smaller than this bar, so it was, it was intense teeny. and packed. And, and out in the middle of hot, nowhere yeah. relatively to now, like yeah. Cameron was... No, it's at Queen and Spadina, yeah. Which so felt far at the time. 
I live, felt far I live to next go all the way so to Queen and Spadina. Donna, it's because you're from Orangeville. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah I did. Busted. I had farther to travel. <laughs> <laughs> now, Philip, what was happening in beauty at this time? Like, so can you give us a little bit of a background as to, you know, Frank and Frank and how, how like, what is happening with well, Mac? Because well, that's Mac such an important in, in part. Well, started in 1984, and quite frankly, right now I'm doing sort of an archival project for them on pulling together the history. And, and I was really surprised because I sort of, I met them in 80, as early as 87 because I did the Mac show. I got that. I was lucky enough to me, Sam Turkus, and Andy Nikolaevich, we, we, all of a sudden we were hired to do the shows, like, you know, in the second year after the first year. Um, and um, so I met them then. But in, in 84, when I look back on it now, what's really surprising is one of the, the things that came out uh, what Fenty, as you know, F anyone, everyone here probably knows Fenty. They have mm -hmm. a huge line of a foundation uh, that they're saying is like now covers now in 2018 covers everybody. We they, it didn't exist. Like we came out with it first, like in the 90s. But shockingly enough, what I found in the 80s was um, there really wasn't foundation for everybody. We were the first brand to have that foundation. And I asked a lot of um, African-American makeup artists. And I said, what is that? I said, usually when people, like corporations, see that there's going to be a niche for to make money, no matter who that customer is, they're going to go after that money. And they said, well, that's actually not true, that they thought that, you know, in the States, African-American customers were, would, would not buy prestige because we are considered a prestige brand. Mm -hmm. They would do drugstore brands. So nobody bothered to go into Bendel's, Saks, and places with that range. And we're talking like, you know, like by the time we did it, it was the 90s because 84 is the starting point. So he said it wasn't, it wasn't finances. It was a choice for brands. And, and you know, that shocked me to, to hear that, you know, in a place that is as voracious for money and for marketplace mm -hmm. as the United States that they ignored that many people. But they did, because when Mac did come out with a foundation for African-American women or Middle Eastern women, because we started out for all sexes, all races, you know, all ages, right from the start. And was that Frank and Frank's vision? That like that Frank was just, that's, that's in their DNA from so the very beginning. Yes, like, so they were just pioneers. Everything is so marketed now that you, you sort of forget that people used to come from a place of passion. And I mean, the brand were so, you know, and. I'm not trying to put marketing, it's not a dirty word, it's, it's the way, but you know, at that time it was like, that was one of the, that was a big intent to fill those you know, niches because they wanted to be that brand. And how was that received? Like back in, back in the 80s, how was that philosophy received? Because I think we kind of take it for granted now, well, how inclusive Mac's our reputation customers is, Customers right? of color, women of color went crazy. That's what put us on the map, right? The other thing that put us on the map is I look at all the early articles of Mac and I realize that we never, no one did an article on Mac about new shade, fabulous, new this, this fabulous. Everything mentioned the social conscious of the brand first, which was like, oh, you know, they talked, because Viva Glam is earlier than RuPaul. Like some people think we did Viva Glam for RuPaul. That is not true. It was also, you know, um, they were already talking about it when we're backstage in 1987, the first um, uh, Fashion Cares, uh, I remember Frank already talking about it. It wouldn't really show up until the 90s, but, um, but that is also why the brand was wildly received, because if you think about it, the, the other brands like the Lancomes and uh, the, they were for a very um, select audience of women, rich women, usually white women. You know, it, it, there was no, yeah. and you know, I can say that because funny enough, until you g have social media, global beauty doesn't become global beauty, no matter what anybody says, if you ask me, until you have social media and everyone is now aware that, you know, there's no shade for me. There's no shade for me in Dubai. There's no shade for me in Nigeria. There's no shade for me. That's not true in Asia because they had Japan, but that's, you know, it's like a revelation how, you know, ethnocentric the, even the beauty industry, I could say this now because I'm retired, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's like the, 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 uh, the, the growth, you know, the change, what's happening now is, is pretty amazing. Like yeah. global beauty is because social media 
is truly global. At that time, and I look at the press we got, I mean, we're, we're talking about a dozen magazine articles that made the company, and word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth. Like Can you give what, us um, a bit of a time frame? Because I think you you mentioned kind of a misperception that people have in terms of like the the chronology of you know when Mac began, when what was the inspiration of Fashion Cares? When did Viva Glam start? How did RuPaul and Katie Lang get involved? Because I think you know as we talk about the '80s and it's full of you know color and expression and house music and all of this like really um, inspiring and and energetic was. Uh, vibe was happening I mean it was also the AIDS crisis so you had these two which is obviously part of what fashion cares is about so can you give us a little bit of the chronology of of that story so that when we start to talk more about it we've got right. the right system well, I mean I think of the 80s as a completely electric time like worldwide but uh, we were talking about it before we got here, like 1984 was some sort of banner year because all of a sudden you had dozens of designers here. Like you had like Hoax, you had Kareem Rashid, um, you know, for Babel, you had Emily Zarb, you had Lucas who's just moved back in the city, you had Zapata which did beautiful stuff, you have Comrades that's took on. All of a sudden you had all these small brands, enough for them to start the Festival of Canadian Fashion, which with like power, like beautiful, beautiful stuff, young designers that were like a posse too. It's not, you know, there was a hierarchy, but that was like Wayne and Alfred, but even they were young, like even Alfred and Wayne Clark at that mm -hmm. time are only in their 30s or 40s doing really glamorous stuff and being picked up and put into like uh, bigger stores or whatever. So the, the 80s is just like, everything's waiting to happen. And if you it's kind of like now with social media. There was a niche. There was niches all over the place the size of rivers, you know, <laughs> to fill. Whether it was beauty, it's like we're tired of conservative fashion. Well, you should be. I mean, you know, so that was breaking loose. Beauty would break loose. Um, sexuality really broke loose, like in, in the 80s, right? It, so all of it was like a perfect storm for that stuff to happen. So, you know, that's the 80s going into the 90s. Um, and like I said, Frank and Frank wanted to start uh, Mac because there was no one doing color. Like everyone was still doing sort of, you know, and matte lipstick came about from Mac Cosmetics. Can you imagine life now without Mac? <coughs> Say it's me, not Mac, so. Mac, it's, it's, it's like toilet paper. Like, what do you mean there's no matte lipstick? So, but that's, those are like little things like that came about like in the 80s that were not little. These are multi-billion dollar businesses for people. You know, we, we saw like one Ruby Woo every four seconds still, like to this day. So, you know, there was that, and I think beauty just exploded, fashion just exploded as well. Well, and we had MTV and Much Music Start, we had fashion and television was spelt. The same year, it was almost. the same year. Yes, we saw red carpets year. for, uh, you know, there was a, an interest in the red carpet as a result of like the Oscars and stuff like that taking mm -hmm. off. Like there was this hyper visibility. Supermodels. 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 Huge yeah. influence. We, we basically made it on the word of like three people. Madonna was number one in 99. Madonna influenced you know, everybody of our, you know, generation with her music and her style. Well, and Madonna's important, and Jim, I'd like you to talk about this a little bit, because, you know, she worked so much with Jean-Paul Gaultier in, in the 90s, and right. he was, you know, when I think of um, a, 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 a designer that's pushing the boundaries, that, you know, speaks to, you know, gay men and everything that was happening at the time, like Jean-Paul is always top of mind. Yeah, well, he he did such uh, amazing work. Like he did the uh, he did the whole lingerie as outerwear look that uh, that um, just took the world by storm. Everybody thought it was bonkers. He did the the big cone bras for Madonna, and she just loved it. And she put it out there on stage, and everybody ate it up. It was like it was it was part of her bringing sexuality to the to the front of the stage as well. Like she had a, that book called Sex as well, right? Yeah. So she was, and she was she brought the whole gay um, voguing scene to the front as well. Um, the, the New York voguing balls, um, she put that, she did the song Vogue that uh, brought that out as well. So um, She was one of Keith Haring's like, best friends before he passed away of AIDS and one of the other people, obviously, like in the art scene in New York. Was she a key, p a, a key moment in terms of uniting, you know, gay rights, women's rights, sexuality, fashion like was she part of that perfect storm do you think like could we be where we are today without without madonna, without madonna? <laughs> <laughs> dare i suggest that's a good question 
Yeah, I, I don't know if that's true, but I, she certainly did a lot to put it forward. Yeah, yeah really yeah. a lot. We're, um, I mean, on that same tour we're talking about, uh, Blonde Ambition, she wore Russian red, and that's 1990. Russian red put us on the map. Like that was shade. that the first Viva Glam shade, no, Russian it's red? No, just Russian red. Just was Russian like the red first was in a own. trinity of three shades of red that were like, oh my God, what color did she have on her lips? Oh my God, it's Russian red. I've got to go get it. So it was, you know, before Ruby Woo, there was Russian red, and then um, there was Lady Danger, like in the 90s. Those three reds were um, in the 90s and to this day are in the top 10 of MAC Cosmetics because red never goes out of style. Like, you know, you can just keep <laughs> wearing it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Fashion Cares, because, Jim, you were involved with Fashion Cares from the beginning as well. Yeah, I think we did every Fashion Cares except for one, I think. And uh, (laughs) for people who don't know know what Fashion Cares is, can you tell us a little bit about, like, when it started, what it is, and why it... Fashion Cares started in 1987. Um, Here in Toronto, it started there. And what was the AIDS crisis had just kind of blown up. People were starting to die. Um, nobody knew what was happening. And gay men were being stigmatized. And uh, and the whole idea of being gay, people were just terrified, right? And nobody knew what was really happening or why it was happening. And so we did this first fundraiser where we got a bunch of, for Philip and Sid Better, um, got a bunch of fashion designers together to throw a big party, do some custom outfits. And they did a really wacky show in the, at the Diamond here in Toronto. And um, apparently you attracted some negative press from that, you said? Yeah, yeah we yeah. got negative press. Yeah, like but anyway, the, the show blew up and, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger every year until, you know, like, I can't even remember. 20, 2012 was the last mm-hmm. one with, yeah, with Elton, Elton John, John and uh, Janelle Monae and, um, yeah. yeah. And was it, was it for the community to come together as a moment of optimism and raise funds? Like, what was part you know, of the it ethos? It had nothing to do with optimism. It, I, I think it had to do with fear. You know, we were really young. We were really, I was scared shitless. I mean, you know, what's this about a disease? You, didn't, you knew nothing about the disease. The AIDS Committee of Toronto didn't even have a name yet. They named it. I could hear uh, that the first time I heard the name AIDS Committee, I think they said, this is what we think we're going to call it. What's this disease? You don't know. It was like if you took SARS, which even then I think everybody in this room is too young, and you multiplied it times 1,000, the fear that there was a disease that if you shook hands with somebody with AIDS, that you entered into a room. I mean, people were dying in hall, hallways and hotels because the hotel staff were so disgusted by this disease. And it's like, and then they made the association that was from gay men. So you are associated in the 80s with this, you know, quote unquote, disgusting, horrifying, and it was horrifying. It was horrifying to all of us. Yeah. So People were abandoned in hospitals because yeah. they, they would put in a room and tape over the door and, uh, and nobody was allowed to go in. And, you know, so it was... They didn't know what they were dealing with. People right? were so dying, and the money was raised, which was $40,000 that year, to help people because there was no funds whatsoever. There was people being, you know, uh, kept Fan- out of hospitals uh, by their families that deserted them. You needed the money just to, like, get them into a safe bed or something like that at the time. It did. There was nothing positive about it, Donna. It was mm-hmm. just, it was all, like, emotional, uh, you know, that we, we want to do something. What can we do? What do we know how to do? And we're like, we're in fashion and beauty. We do a fashion <laughs> show to raise money. But it was like, uh, speaking personally, it was out of fear. Yeah, I guess um, I, I, I didn't want to, I wasn't meaning that the event was made out of anything other than, you know, fear and concern. But when we spoke earlier, you talked about how it was like you went, the, the show went big. Like it was, it was a fashion show, right? So how did it grow from there? Because Fashion Cares has such a rich history, and I think it's such an important part of the Canadian fashion story, especially. What was it like after the first year? Well, I'm going to go back to another question you asked, and it, sure. it, it was a statement from the fashion and beauty comu- uh, community. That's who, who, that's who was there. That's who attended it, you know, the designers. All of us in that room really wanted to do something, and it, it wasn't... The Diamond Club is, like, it's a, not... It's bigger than this room, yeah. but not a heck of a lot, right? And $40,000 isn't like a heck of a lot, but it was like a beginning. Um, and there wasn't any awareness, but of course awareness grew. Um, and it didn't really turn. Mac was backstage the first year. They were not back there the second year. I wasn't there the second year because I was in a giant car accident again. 
So <laughs> again. Uh, uh, <laughs> so it wasn't until after the show in '93 when we were still weren't making much money. There were still no corporate sponsors until '94, the Wings of Life, which we were talking about earlier, because no corporation wanted to touch it as late as 1994. Um, and we were scraping by everything. You, you begged for everything. But the great thing about asking for things back then was that people wanted to help. So you got help at that time. Um, and then in 94, after the 93 show, I, I went to Frank, actually. Um, I said, hey, the show is a great show. Everyone thinks it you know, wants to do something. But there's no support. There's no and this is where it's like you have to have corporate support if you want money for big yes. events and to raise money. It, it, you know, you, you deny it because you don't want it at first because we're cool downtown people. But in the end, it's like, we're not making any money like at this, you know, mm -hmm. they really need big dollars. So he said, I will sponsor Fashion Carers, and this was the deal, if you <laughs> would consider coming to work for us at Mac. And I said, well, I'll consider that. Inside deal. Inside deal. And he called the Bay while I was sitting there, talked to Rod Almer at the Bay, and the Bay, remember, was the sponsor along with Mac. Yes. Picked it up like that on the phone. After years of like not, I thought, wow, that was easy. Like, you know, so, <laughs> so that's how corporate sponsor came in. But then times are changing. Mm. But Mac became the first corporate sponsor, but not until 1993. Then people started to jump on, you know, after that. Um, and uh, even, even by the time we hit 95 in RuPaul, when we went to the Armory, it's still not huge. It's this, the audience is in the mm. thousands. Like now, I think everybody's thinking stadium size or something like that. But it's not. It's still. And I it think was we were legend, so proud though. that we made like $1.3 yeah. million. Dollars, and you think, well, nowadays Mount Sinai would make that like double that, like in one, one night or something like that. So it was hard raising money. And we didn't get. There's, the people, of course, were fervent that were there to help us. But. Um, you still had people outside who was like, well, that disease is just like, mm -hmm. worse. corporate people were like staying away in droves. Jim, what was your experience as a designer participating in all of the fashion cares? What was it like in terms of, you know, watching it grow and, and, and participating in that? Well, it was an opportunity for us to just let our hair down and do something really fun and crazy, right? So, uh, like they would come up with a theme and we would just run with it and, uh, the picture you're looking at there <laughs> was the one we ran the yeah. furthest. <laughs> where, where the we biggest. Yeah. So we... Uh, the 19, that's 1993. Yeah. And it was at the BCE place um, under the in the Galleria. And uh, uh, I forget what the name of the theme was. That Arc Couture. Arc Couture. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I got my architectural background yes. involved here and designed a 12-foot-tall dress. Um, and we thought that the model would model it on stilts, but Philip had the genius idea that he said, we've, we've got these acrobats here. Why doesn't the girl just stand well, on just the put a guy shoulders the and, and then he will walk down the runway with her on his shoulders? And I went, you can do that? And he goes, <laughs> and he goes yeah, sure. And, and then as the models, it works. We get her up there and she's walking down there and I look down at table one, which is Galen and Hillary Weston who are at the end of the runway and we realize that the acrobat who's under the skirt can't really see, <laughs> only speaks Russian, <laughs> and Susie Horton, who was standing on his shoulders, is going left, left, right, 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 left, 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 right, left, right. With a smile on her yeah. face. <laughs> turn, turn, now turn, okay, okay. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we did not kill the Westons, and uh, we made it through. <laughs> And what did it mean, like, how did it feel to be participating? Like, did you guys realize that you were building something iconic? Well, it was it such a community of people doing it. Like, I don't know how many designers were involved in every show, but 50 fashion designers, 500 makeup artists, 500 hair, hair people, um, all backstage, you know. And, like, it wasn't even just the models on the stage. There's the performers. There's the, you know, I don't know how many naked people there were on podiums. <laughs> <laughs> Always a lot. <laughs> so. There were a lot of people in the crowd that had to be outfitted and, and, and made up and everything. And it was, it was just a total hedonistic extravaganza, like uh, every time, which but, was... But it did catch on with everybody, which is why, and you know, visually it was in the fashion pages. So, I mean, it had its own following just because, it, uh, going back to fantasy, it was kind of an escape. Like, you know, mm. we were... 
we kind of knew they were like we're using fantasy to raise funds for one of the most horrifying looking being you know diseases that there is so uh, that, that but that's that's what we know like you know in, in fashion and beauty you know so um, that's what you got to use like and, and and I think it was the the energy and the passion that went into it that made it iconic and famous and the same with Mac certain writers certain um, you call them influencers now that help your cause they write it and they they they, they you who know, they were your they champions at the time that were the writers that really helped push it uh, I think most Toronto pl- most press Toronto fashion was, press would have like yeah David Livingston and we, names, yeah, we did get blasted by a few mm-hmm. people who sort of, they just saw it as a spectacle. So it was like, what are you guys doing? And, you know, they, you could go that direction too and go, why weren't you more, you know, can you raise money seriously for this? And the answer actually was, no, you couldn't actually just raise. Because it was like, well, what are you raising the money for? Like, I hear you, you die from it. So, you know, so we were just raising money to put it wherever we could put it, mm-hmm. like in those years. And could you see sort of like, you know, especially looking backwards now, with the rise of fashion cares and, you know, people like Jean-Paul Gaultier becoming more high profile, and was, was, there, was there a growing acceptance of gay rights happening at the same time that kind of helped turn the tide, or was it really like pushing a boulder uphill the entire time? I, I think once they started to figure out how to treat it, things changed more How do you faster. mean? Like, uh, they realized that AIDS was something you could possibly live with for, they never knew, they knew, nobody knew how long, but now there are people who lived with it for 25 years, right? So, um, but at the time, at the time, nobody thought there was a treatment or, or a, a cure mm-hmm. at the, in the, fir- the first few, few years, right? Like, you've got it. At that it, time, it there really is still nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because when, when I think of when I think of fashion cares, the thing that resonates with me is that it it's one of the few moments that I think of the fashion world coming together, like where it wasn't you know a week of individual fashion shows. It was like there was a real sense of of community within an industry that felt very fragmented previously. Am I drinking? Oh, to- is no, that that's totally true. Yeah, yeah, totally true. Like, the Toronto is a. Um, the fashion community in Toronto is quite. We we are a community, I would say, you know, and and like, I mean, I know you might be talking about Dare to Wear Love soon, but mm-hmm. uh, our event that we do, which raises money for HIV and AIDS in Africa, uh, we get 25 fashion designers. They're all happy to do it. They love working together. It's like a, it's it's a, it's a real strong community here. I, I say the same thing that the community here in Toronto is like. It's almost unique. There are, there, there were very few. Um, organizations in the world that is big. The Life Ball is still happening in uh, Vienna. But mm-hmm. every other you know, AIDS fundraiser is kind of over. But at that time, you, c- I, you could call on people every single year and they either came back like Hoax and Comrags you know, and, and Zapata or there would be new people. There was no end of volunteers. And I, I think you know, if, if I got into trouble a lot, it's because I kept making the show bigger so we could include more people. Just And you know, but that that created great goodwill. It wasn't an elitist event. It was never an avi- elitist <laughs> event. Just you know, uh, for people with money to um, put their money into, it was also about being able to be a participant in it as well. Um, and people wanted that, and that's that's why it got such a great reputation because it was very inclusive. And w- did that ripple through the fashion community, Jim? Well, I, th- I think so, because we've all worked on that show together, like mm-hmm. all of us, right? And uh, so we all have that in common, you know? And s- we don't really compete with each other, most of us, uh, but uh, um, but we uh, we have that thing in common. Because so I feel that's quite unique to Toronto. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I, I can't think, think so, of yeah. events in other, in other capitals. And that aspect of, of being a Toronto designer is part of the reason we never moved to New York, like I would say, you know, so it's it's the sense of community that, that there is here, uh, as opposed to the, you know, kill your neighbor in, in New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> did, it, did it also um, enrich the LGBTQ sense of community? Like, did it, was it a chance for... I, I think so, like, uh, yeah, because it was, yeah. there was a lot of um, positive expression of, of 
you know, being gay in the fashion care shows. You know, there was a, a positive expression about sexuality in general, of uh, about being gay. It, it was like uh, very much to eliminate the stigma associated with the disease, right? So uh, that was a big part of it. I know, I know it inspired people in my life to, yeah. to, 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 to be out and, and to you know, feel like there was a community for them. Yeah, and, and, and lots of other people who were, were not gay also were exposed to it and, and became uncomfortable with it. And then, Philip, you know, all good things come to an end. And Fashion Care has held its last event in 2012. 2012. What was that like having that chapter um, close? Yeah, you know, quite honestly, it sort of felt like it had run its course. I mean, it had like a raging first 20 years, and then even the last few years before the 25th was kind of spotty. Um, and um, uh, things run their course. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, I just sort of accepted it, and I, I mean, it's probably every two days somebody says, oh, you should start Fashion Cares again, and I just think, well, there might be one more retrospective, but it's not going to, you know, times have changed for that kind of a thing. And it <laughs> makes room for other events, so can you talk a bit about Dare to Wear Love, um, Jim? Yeah, we, Fashion Cares was on hiatus when we started Dare to Wear Love, I think, and, and we, we were approached by the Stephen Lewis Foundation, which raises money for HIV and AIDS in Africa, um, and they told us what they did and we were so moved by the work that they did in Africa that we said, well, maybe we can help you out. And we thought we would do a little fashion show in a cafe or something like that and raise... In a cafe. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we ended up uh, saying, well, that's too much work just for us. Let's get some more people involved. And we got 25 fashion designers that first year. And, and that first year was what year? 2009. And we um, put it on the runway at Toronto Fashion Week. And... Uh, and it was a massive hit right from the get-go. But it, it was sort of in the community spirit of Fashion Cares. And, uh, and I, that's, that whole community spirit thing is what's let us bring this event forward as well. So that now we're going to be, next, in 2019, we're going to do our seventh event. And, um, and now we're supporting, the Stephen Lewis Foundation now has a LGBTQ uh, Africa initiative and they're supporting LGBTQ organizations in Africa um, and if you know anything about being gay in Africa you know it's very tough still and if yeah. it, and and being HIV positive in Africa is also very tough whether you're gay or not and um, so um, it's really important to support this kind of thing and um, so we're going to do an event and because we're supporting the Africa initiative we think we're going to do the whole thing in uh, the all the runway performance will be in drag Ooh. I know. <laughs> Stay tuned. The Fashion Talks website will have information about that. So I, I love that the kind of, I don't want to say the legacy of Fashion Cares, because obviously Fashion Cares is its own thing, but that the sense of the community, spirit. the spirit yeah. lives, the lives on. The legacy of the fashion community, fashion and beauty community in Toronto. Toronto really especially, yeah, it right? It going, yeah. Um, before we wrap things up, we would be remiss in talking about you know this arc if we didn't go back to Viva Glam and talking about KD and RuPaul because I see that as such a kind of like an important moment of fashion and beauty and and having LGBTQ people in a really high profile place can you talk a little bit about how that all well, came to be sure uh, again I, I you know kudos to Frank and Frank because when they first saw um, RuPaul, it was at Wigstock in New York, and he wasn't that well-known. Um, but if you look at the early advertising that we did with Mac, it was all graphic. It was actually, a lot of it was done by Donald Robertson, which uh, some of you might know as well. But we didn't have a face, and the reason was that, you know, the rationale was if you have a face, if you're all ages, all sexes, all races, who's going to be a face? You can't do that. Then they saw RuPaul at Wigstock and went, Oh my God, he's like every age, every sex, you know, and he wears more makeup than anybody on the planet. So in some <laughs> ways, he was the embodiment of MAC Cosmetics, even though he was a man dressing as a woman and he's seven foot six. So that was the first time, they, that's when they, you know, it was like, it should be Rue. It can be Rue. We haven't had a face. So there is, so the first campaign was who is the MAC girl? And then that came out, like this image, 
I am the Mac girl, and you know it. It is hard. Like he's syndicated now, for God's sake. He's yeah. like in every country. How radical that image was back in like the mid '90s, because like remember Conan and Barrett, O'Brien, like you know that's for time. You know was like, oh, like oh yeah, I want to look like a seven foot six black man, but um, <laughs> it that was radical. That was a huge thing that broke and so many barriers. And how was it received? Um, with sort of astonishment, like you know when I, I read the press, it was and you know. Uh, again, there was like press that championed it like crazy. Other people that just thought, oh, "Well, this is this is nuts." I I remember going to an AIDS or, or organization and saying, "We want to give you a grant, which you know, 100% of the proceeds from Viva Glam go to the Mac AIDS Fund, and then they the the funds go out." So we were in a city, and I went and I said, "You know, we have $25,000. We want to give you." And they said, "We we don't want it." And I said, what do you mean you don't want it? He goes, well, look at who you are. We, we don't want money that's raised using that image. And I thought, oh, wow. You know, that was like a huge, like, you know, my eyes blew open. I was kind of like, wow. So there's still parts of the world, you know, uh, including an, even a, an AIDS hospice that doesn't want the money, that sort of conservatism. So Did RuPaul jump at the chance, or did it take some convincing? Or? No, oh, it didn't take much convincing. <laughs> so... Rue was pretty happy to, um, you know, but he was, he had already done Supermodel, the song, right. so he had that reputation, um, and he's, he, you know, again, it's Perfect Storm, he, he works with, uh, to this day, Matthew Anderson does his hair and makeup, which, because his makeup holds up to, like, this moment, it's good hair and makeup, mm-hmm. uh, and the outfit there, the, the, the red holds up to this, uh, Bullpen made that outfit, um, so... It, we launched it. It was at Henry Bendel's in New York. And Jeannie Becker was the host, actually. We flew her in to, uh, to host it. And the rest is kind of that kind of a hit. It wasn't... Um, it sounds... It's, it's grown in impact. Like, the legend has grown over time. It was important at the time, and it got a lot of press. But there was still a reservation <laughs> about the whole thing. It wasn't 100%, oh, wow, that's just yeah, fucking And the tides turned just happen. like that. So, no, it didn't. Yeah. J- Jim, didn't. do you remember when this campaign started? Uh, totally, yeah. We were, we were like, wow, like yeah. that is phenomenal, you know? And, you know, if the makeup can like make a black man look like that, then it must be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then you had KD at the same time. So she was the, the next So KD year. was the next person. And yeah. then she was like renowned. Like she's amazing KD. But she has a renown for not wearing any makeup. So well, we, you know, although she wanted to do it as like KD, that means you, you know, it's just one shade. And she was like, great. She said, for you, for, you know, for, for this cause, I will become a lipstick lesbian. So, you know, she became the second shade. Uh, and wow, KD was like amazing. And she... You know, she had her music, and she had just done the famous um, Vanity Fair picture. Oh, with Cindy Crawford. With Cindy Crawford, yeah. you know, like... Uh, giving her a straight shave. Her, yeah, yeah, the straight shave and stuff like that. So between the two of them, it was kind of like, oh, my God, this must be the gayest brand in the world, <laughs> you know, to have these two spokespeople at that time, um, to the point where we actually had to, you know, sort of uh, come in with some other direction. I won't say we, you know... Because a lot of people thought all of a sudden we were only a theatrical brand with only theatrical makeup for for for, for performers, right? Not not for your average woman. So, right. Oh, we've never been about the average woman, but you know what I mean. I mean, like um, the thing I always thought that was so interesting about having RuPaul and KD is they like your spectrum was like gay man, gay woman, lots of makeup, no makeup. Like they're such polar opposites in many ways that to have them in the same like was that an intentional choice or was it just they kind of fell into no I got it, it wasn't really intentional yeah. it was like Rue happened and then quite honestly was sort of like oh gee would we follow that up with yeah. you know kind <laughs> of a thing or do we have a second face or whatever and really K- KD came up and you know uh appeared on the on the on the scene it was kind of like wow what about KD like like she looks amazing and you know, we could do like a great shade, but the the color too, um, it had to be wearable. Uh, so it was like, okay, we can do a pink. We can go from red to pink. She wore did one of the first pinks, and you know, I I don't. To date, it has made four hundred and fifty million dollars. Like That's amazing. Yeah, for now, like it's just been 
stupendous what Viva Clam has made. And I remember, but even at the beginning, we're making about a million a year, which was stupendous, like for the lipstick sales. Because, um, and Frank and Frank put it into stores. A lot of the stores didn't want it. Like, I won't give names of stores, and actually, it wasn't anybody here. But they were like, no, we won't sell that lipstick. For one thing, you're telling us to hand over 100% of the proceeds. Like, what? You know, that's part of that's our cut. Mm. And they would say, if you want our product, you have to, we have to sell this lipstick because that's who we are. So, but then that became our, you know, th that was us. Yeah. And more and more stores started to agree with it. But um, it wasn't, you know, it was not embraced everywhere, like, you know, first off. So... I'd like, we're just gonna, we're gonna wrap up and then we'll open it up to questions in the audience, but if you had, and I'd like both of you guys to answer this question, how do you see some of the biggest changes in, in fashion and beauty and, and the gay community from then to now? Like, do you see it as, how do you, how would you kind of describe how, where we've come to? Well, I think we're at a point now where um, you can't necessarily tell if someone's gay. You have, it began with the metrosexual guys that uh, were taking all the cues from the, from the gay men dressing flamboyantly. And, uh, and, and now it's like, you know, you see these guys with perfect beards and perfectly coiffed hair and beautiful suits, tailored suits and everything. And you, I don't know, like, we don't know if they're, you can't tell. Uh, so I think it's like gay fashion is, has kind of become mainstream and, uh, and uh, so we're at a point where it matters less, I think. What about you, Philip? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say it's the same. That it's become much more fluid, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is a great thing. It's come a long way from where we're talking about, like in, yeah. the, in the 80s, for sure. And uh, that's wonderful. I, I guess, you know, it's not fashion and beauty, but then that's depending upon where you are. Like we're a North American society, European society. If yeah. you go absolutely. back to, you know, like. Um, yeah, we're talking about Western. Uh, yeah, we're absolutely Western talking about, yeah. about the Western yeah. world. And the other thing sure. is the whole androgynous dressing that's, that's uh, become a thing now where people are putting out lines of clothes that are just unisex completely, you know? So, um, so again, like gender fluidity, all of that stuff is kind of making fuzzy lines. Before lines were kind of firmer and now the lines are very fuzzy. And we're just talking about how unique RuPaul, RuPaul is in the 90s. And then, you know, is, is there anywhere where you don't see drag race yeah. like being advertised, <laughs> yeah, know. you know, promoted, the different and now, fame and, and Violet Tchotchke. And so, I mean, obviously, I mean, th sh you know, there's, they're walking in the Victoria's Secret show. So, obviously, a lot of things have changed. Yeah. And now, now my friends who have children who are teenagers, their kids are... Um, they they don't call themselves gay or straight or anything. They call themselves ABS, which is anything but straight. And uh, you know, so this is this, that's the cool thing to be as a teenager in some schools now. So, so uh, it's like a very interesting time that we're in right now. Transition. Transition. Absolutely. Thank you guys so very much. Um, are there any questions for anyone from anyone? Oh, we have a question. <laughs> No, you can just shut. I'm intrigued. You know, I look at fashion and beauty as both art and business. And you mentioned the fact that before there were hidden signifiers that you would use. You talked about um, the illegality of, of being homosexual um, and how, you know, we talked about how the 80s was this kind of transition time. We talked about this disease that scared people. hiding it, right. uh, scared, hidden signifiers, because if you go out there, you're going to get bashed and, and, and attacked. Was there a moment, was there, what, what, what gets a business to, to, to change that attitude other than, you know, today it's an easier decision, yeah. not easy, but easier. Well, it's like, an impossible decision back then. It's, um, some, at some point in the 90s, corporate culture changed to be more in and more, uh, what's the word they use now? Um, 
diverse, yeah. So uh, diversity, like so that now they have like the banks have people in charge of diversity. And I don't know exactly when that happened. I know I don't know when that happened exactly, but like in it was around the year 2000 maybe or something like that. So now we were at an event the other night. TD was there and TD is supporting 83 pride parades or something like that in in North yeah. America. <laughs> Woo indeed. In North America this year, right? Yeah. So uh, Right, no way. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, so the world is changing, and uh, but was there a moment that you could identify at least like a like a like a watershed thing that yeah. made everything turn? I don't know. I can't. For you, Philip? Uh, yeah, I can't either. Actually, I mean, uh, what you're saying again, all I can sort of think is the Mac was like was miraculous because we started that way. There was no yeah. transition. Yeah. We we s they set out to to make that statement and it turned into a political statement because they wanted to be decent people and compassionate people and humane people. Um, you know, so we weren't a brand that had to transition into that kind of thinking and that's very unique for a company that grew to the size that, and that it and did. And I, th I think there's uh, the whole aspect of visibility. So like in the, when Rock Hudson said, I'm gay, for right. example, suddenly it's like, oh, wait a minute, right? And then <laughs> another, and then George Michael, you know, mm -hmm. and then another, I can't know, I don't know who was next, mm -hmm. but it, but suddenly there's more yeah. and more and more mm -hmm. people being visible. People that people loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and respected, and, uh, and, and then a few, you know, business people said it, and then, um, and suddenly it was like, you, you're starting to see them everywhere, and then suddenly people aren't caring, right? And, uh, and then suddenly people are saying, well, it's important that that person has the same rights as me, right? I mean, it's still big issues, obviously, south of the border here. It's big issues. Seriously. Like, uh, you know, so um, uh, it's not, we're not in a perfect world yet. No. <laughs> the Canada is almost perfect. <laughs> Anyone else have a question? Yeah. I'm going to have you come get the mic, though, so we can record it. Okay. This is Sydney. <laughs> Hello, that's, that's me. Um, I'm curious about the intersectionality between fashion and politics and that in, we just discussed it for the past 30 years. But as we move towards like brands that are going straight unisex clothing, um, I'm curious to think or discuss what we think the next political, wh where we think fashion and beauty is going to intersect with politics again. and who are those trailblazers and how is that going to change? It's a big, big question. We don't need to solve it now, but like. Curious. <laughs> who are the trailblazers? God, it moves so quickly now that uh, could blaze right past you almost. <laughs> um, and I sort of think part of that has to do with, at the moment, the whole trans community is um, trailblazing because I swear, I, what, three, four years ago, I, I don't think that would have come up. It was LGBT, mm -hmm. and now it's, you know, too. So there is a lot going on, like, there with that community and making a statement about, you know, fluidity and, um, you know, blurring the sex, sexual lines, so. Like, yeah, I, I can't think of any one company that's doing something like that now, but all I know yeah. is that it's a, it's a movement that's happening. Like, we are... We do custom fashion design. We don't do a, a line of clothes. So right now, we're currently, we're delivering it next on Tuesday. We're we're doing an outfit for a kid's grade eight graduation. He is going to his grade eight grad in drag. Like uh, that's awesome. Yeah, totally. Blue sequins, head to toe. <laughs> <laughs> he's got he's got five wigs. He's going to choose which one he's going to wear and. Um, and he's got his friend is going to help him do his makeup, and he's going to his grade eight graduation in full drag and six inch heels. Fantastic! So, <laughs> it so it it's a, it's a thing that's happening at at like you know it's uh, it's it's happening. It th th that reminds me, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but it it's been um, in the news about a month ago. The young man from Toronto who did his high school grad photos and full makeup with yeah. his beard. Like I think of them as kind of trailblazers and that it that a, a young person is going to their grade eight grad in drag, like that's amazing. And and his mom's into it, so <laughs> so cool. So cool. Any other questions? 
Actually, I'm pretty sure it was a bank. <laughs> was it a bank? Yeah, it was the banks. Yeah, it was yeah. the banks right? Bless the banks. Bless the banks. <laughs> but it's kind of somewhere back in the last hour I mentioned that, you know, when, you know, when finances are involved, then all of a sudden, yeah, start yeah. To people you know, do pop up. So yeah. it would be make sense that sensible banking people would go, there's a lot of people at that event. You know, so I'm pretty sure it was the uh, Bank of Montreal. As they wait for proof of concept and then can jump in with their... Support in a way, I guess. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, but I am amazed how active the banks are in Toronto, actually, more than any other country, as far as, like, you know, having committees and organizing events. Like, I mean, this month, now we've got Pride Month, not even Pride Week, and uh, the, the banks are driving a lot of it, and I think that's kind of amazing, actually. Yeah, it really is. Great. Well... Jim and Philip, thank you so very much for being thank here you, today. Donna. If you, people Donna. are interested in in following, you know, what you're doing at, at Hoax Couture, is there should we drive them to the website? Where can people follow you? Yeah, Hoax Couture or at Hoax Couture on Instagram or Facebook or and dare to wear love.com is the fundraiser we do. Amazing. And Philip, what about you? If people wanna keep an eye on what's going on with Philip or with the archives happening at Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee table book to come? I don't know. <laughs> We've got one of those. Yeah. Um, gee, I'm pretty elusive. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an Instagram yeah. account. <laughs> so, and I post a lot of, I have been posting a lot of previous, you know, pictures from there. I'm not, I'm not, this is not a thing for my Instagram account, but uh, until we come up with something all right, More stay tuned. Check yeah, the Fashion Talks website and we'll fill you in. Um, you can follow me at This Is Donna B. And Fashion Talks has its uh, own handle at Fashion Talks Pod. And we love hearing feedback on episodes. So if you feel inclined, please reach out. A big thank you to CAFA, the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards. Uh, just celebrated our fifth anniversary of our National Fashion Awards. And you can learn more about CAFA and follow us at C-A-F-A-W-A-R. DS. And you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Global, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, and any podcatcher that you like. Until next time, thank you very much. This is Donna Bishop at Fashion Talks. Good. Do you remember my drag football? You had those, didn't you? <laughs> didn't you have those?